We're going to go to James this morning. We're going to look at James and hopefully get, I don't know how far through James 1 in the next four weeks. But I want, I want to speak before we look at James, before we dig into James and before we look at some, uh, a passage in 1 Kings this morning, we have to make sure that we um, have a correct view of the author, his context, and what he means. Uh, I kind of want to, um, you know, as, as we've been here for, I think, five years now, there's a lot of, we, we've done a lot of new talk. There's a lot of talk of uh, being word-driven, gospel-driven, God-centered. And a lot of times we don't know, or I've wondered, what are we becoming? Uh, we, we talk about urgency at hand, of, of what we're to be urgent about, and how does that make us look? What are we becoming as a people? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I hear a lot from teachers and preachers at church about what's important. I hear what we're supposed to be urgent about, but how does that look? How does that make me look? How does that, what am I becoming? What am I to be becoming? And the book of James puts skin around that for us. The book of James tells us this is what God's people look like. And it's, I hate using the word, but it, it is pretty practical. It, it helps us to see this is how God's people are. This is what God's people look like. And that's what the book is about. Uh, it's about us growing and maturing. It is about what we do when we embrace the word, when we embrace a God-centered view of salvation, when we study and when we eat this Bible and when we become familiar with our God, and familiar, and when we're known by God, and we know Him, and we're known by each other, and we know each other, it makes a people look a certain way. James. That's how we look. And that's what this book is written for. That's the purpose of the book, that we would be people who mature and grow into the sheep that we are. And so that's where we're going the next four weeks. And it's going to be difficult because we have to think and we have to examine and search our own heart and search each other to say, that doesn't look like a sheep. <laughs> or press, out, press on. That's what happens to God's people. That's what sheep look like. That's what sheep grow through. That's what sheep smell like. So there is a definite accountability here. When we start looking at what we're becoming, there's this accountability with one another where we say, boy, you don't, you don't look like the sheep that you are, or you don't smell like it, or you don't sound like it. So that's what I hope James does for us. We need to um, hopefully shoot an elephant in the room about James. And if you have any familiarity with James, you will know that it has this reputation for being a book about works, that we get our salvation from works. And if you don't know about that elephant, about James, then good. Let me, let me shoot it and don't ever go there. All right, we need to make sure we get a correct context. We need to know, make some assumptions about James and some assumptions about his context so that we see that this book does not teach, this book does not teach that we gain our salvation by works. It doesn't. But you can kind of get that impression. And as you read through this and as we start to look what do God's people look like, it's very easy to read this and go, oh, this is a real book. If I do these things then I will attain salvation. If I do these things, and if I can keep good at these things, and the more of these I do, the more I look like God's people, that will make me God's people. 
That's not in James anywhere. But we do that, and it's very easy for us to read a book like this, to study a, a, a passages like we're going to study, and say, this is a rule book. This is a rule book. This is a, this is a, a book about how, what I have to do to be saved and what I have to do to confirm and assure my salvation. And that's not what this is. The, the main passage uh, in, in this uh, book that takes us there is, is chapter 2, verse 24. Just flip over. Look at James chapter 2, 24. This is why many times people or we can think that this is a book about works. And when you read this one verse by itself, man, your mind tends to wonder. When you read this, this passage, this one verse in isolation, like you can see, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Whoa, what does that mean? Well, that's the elephant that we're going to shoot, hopefully. And then we're going to look at the life of Elijah. This is not a rule book. It's a wool book. <laughs> and if you think that's cute, well, then Ben came up with it. He, he came up with it. He did. <laughs> so I won't take credit for that unless you think it's smart or really cool. This is not a rule book. But it is a wool book. This, this, this book and these first few passages that we get to go to in the next few weeks are really going to say, are really going to show us that's what wool looks like on a sheep. That's what sheep smell like. That's what they sound like. But we have to get this straight from the, from the get-go. It is, it's going to be very easy for us when you start engaging some of these to think, oh, if I do that, man, I'll feel better about my salvation. Or I'll feel more assured of myself as a believer. That's not where we go. That's not where James is taking us. All right? James, most likely, I believe, to be the brother of Jesus. This guy is able to watch Jesus grow, grow up, and he watches Jesus' earthly ministry. Probably wasn't a believer when he watched Jesus' earthly ministry. He's Jewish to the core. He's probably pretty skeptical of Jesus as he's watching his earthly ministry. He's not converted till after the resurrection. He's well acquainted with the mission of Christ, and he's well acquainted with the persecution of the early church. Now what I want to do is build a case for why James is not a rule book, and we need to see this. And there's a few points that we need to look at here to make sure that we know this is not a rule book. This is likely the earliest New Testament book. So James converted after the resurrection, gets to see this seedling of the New Testament church. He gets to see the, the church as it begins. Persecuted, confused, Christ clinging, God adoring, gospel amazed people, the original. He gets to watch it. Remember that. <clears throat> James is probably even in leadership of this Jerusalem church. James is one of the church leaders that sent out Paul. Paul, the guy who is on the other end of the spectrum when we talk about faith. James says, where's your wool? Where's your proof? James says, not by faith alone, but by works. People will see that you're saved. Paul says, faith alone, faith and grace alone. And he attacks people. He, he, is, he gets angry with and very frustrated with people who add anything to Christ. But James and Paul 
need each other, and I want to show you why. We have to make some assumptions. I think it can be safely assumed that James is assuming a dependence upon Christ alone. Sure, he was Jewish. Sure, he was skeptical. And he's well acquainted with the law, but verse 1 shows us some pretty strong, cool language that indicates that he gets Jesus as God, and he gets the fulfillment of the law. You have to look for Jesus in James, but he's there. Look at verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah God, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now you can just blow by this and say, well, that's just him saying who wrote this. But there's language here that points to James understands Jesus was God. He was the Messiah. Better maybe paraphrased. I like this paraphrase better. Than, G, than James, a servant of God. I like this. James, owned by God and owned by Jesus, the Messiah God. Let me say it again. James, this is him declaring this about himself. Owned by God. This is who's writing the book. I'm owned by God and I'm owned by Jesus, the Messiah God. A guy who says that has an accurate view of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. He attained his salvation. A guy who says that and proclaims that and talks about his Lord in terms of being owned by the Messiah, the Savior, can't have a view that his works would attain his salvation. Do you see it? James, owned by God and Jesus the Messiah God. I love that, Jesus the Messiah God. I love finding new ways and refreshing names for my Lord. I might even put it on Facebook. Jesus the Messiah God. It's, it's, it's alarming when, when we look at new names for Christ. When we, it's alarming to people when you say, well, what is your religious view? Well, I'm a Christian. That can be pretty, blank, pretty bland. But what if people were to ask you, what's your religion, what's your faith? And you say, well, I am owned by Jesus the Messiah God. That's pretty alarming, but it's true. And it paints and depicts truth. The second thing that points us to James being a Christ-adoring and a gospel-clinging dude, is that he does not pull rank. Okay? He could have mentioned here that he was the brother of Jesus, and he left it out. He doesn't even mention that. He doesn't pull rank. That's recognition that Christ was his Savior alone. His physical relationship to Jesus didn't do him any good in terms of his salvation. He could have mentioned here that he was Jesus' brother, and that could be the authority for his message, but he doesn't. He says, no, I'm owned by Jesus, the Messiah God. He could have very easily said, yeah, that's my brother. Look, you people need to listen to me because I'm a good Jew. And look what God did. He made Jesus my brother. <laughs> but how quickly do we think like that in terms of our own salvation? We look at our heritage, maybe. Maybe we'll point to mom and dad's faith. That's physical. And James is void of any connection to Jesus as his physical brother. That tells me this guy adored Jesus, the, the Messiah God, not Jesus, his brother. The third thing, Paul affirms James as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. In Galatians chapter 2, turn there real quick. Galatians chapter 2. Now remember, we're not going to have time to go there this morning, but James and Paul had their differences. They did. But they need each other. 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And when this is Paul speaking. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul says here, James is the one who sent me. I've been commissioned by the church. There is a, a, at least a, some sense that he respects the influence that James has had on him and the oversight that James and the Jerusalem church has over his life. So there's some type of respect. Yeah, they, they disagree a lot uh, on context sometimes, but he, he recognizes James as a pillar in the Jerusalem church. While they had differences, they balance each other beautifully. And here's how they balance each other. Back to James 2.24. Look at chapter 2, verse 24 again. Remember that verse? You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. It's a beautiful balance to Paul's talk of faith alone. And the reason that it's good balance is because rightly interpreted, James 2.24 gives great balance to faith alone talk. And it's a where is your proof? Where is your wool, God's people? That's what that says. Turn to Matthew chapter 3 quickly. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist said this same thing that James says here in James chapter 2. John the Baptist said it, but he said it um, with more chest hair. John chapter 3, look at verse 7. John is baptizing, and all of a sudden, Pharisees and Sadducees come out to get baptized. And John calls them out. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Here it is. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what James is saying in James chapter 2, verse 24. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You profess Christ, look like it. You have faith in Christ alone, look like it. Act like it. Be that. Bear fruit, your life will bear fruit in keeping with repentance that your mouth speaks of. Do you see it? That's the same thing James is saying in James chapter 2. He sees these Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to get baptized because you know what they want to do? They want to know what is... There's something else maybe we could do to be holy. We we're doing all this law stuff, but this John the Baptist, maybe he has something here. We'll go out and get baptized just in case. Just in case. Just in case we're off the mark. Just in case we better go try this. That's not how God's people approach baptism. That's not how we approach faith. That's not how we approach our profession of faith. We stand professing Christ alone and our fruit bears witness to it. We don't come to profess Christ just in case we can't get it ourselves, just in case we don't live good enough, just in case I better get baptized. I want to make it to heaven, so just in case. That is not what John the Baptist teach, teaches. That's not what James is saying. James is teaching us in this book of James, where's your wool? What are you becoming? I love it. Listen, let me, let me just say this. I love it that Paul 
wants people who add anything to Christ to accidentally masticate themselves. <laughs> That's raw. That is hardcore. But he says it in Galatians. And I love it that Paul is that way. But James comes behind him to say, any of the, those of you who want to profess faith alone, only, with your mouth or with your baptism, and don't want to live it, put your money where your mouth is. That's what James would say. That's what John the Baptist says. Where's your wool? You profess it, Christ alone. Steve Roberts did a great job in August when he preached that. And out of Ephesians, Paul, don't add anything to Christ for your salvation. You can't. It's sin for us to try and strive after or attain anything besides resting only in the cross. That's the gospel. And when we try and do anything more, it's sin. But James would say, where's your wool? Trust that only. Trust Christ only. He is the gospel. The cross is the gospel. Where's your wool? Sheep. You, you hear his voice? Where's your wool? So I hope that we will be pushed by James to look for and examine where is our wool? The last thing here is that um, in, in James chapter 1, he says that it is written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's probably speaking to Jewish Christians here. He, he is probably thinking in his mind, these Jewish Christians need to hear this. They need to know what following Christ looks like. But the cool thing is, the symbolism that's there, and what happens is this dispersion becomes more than just the Jews. It becomes all God's people dispersed all, all over the world. This is an Acts 1-8 dispersion to the ends of the earth. The, the Jews are dispersed, and they take it to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are dispersed, and then dispersed, and dispersed, and dispersed, and dispersed. Over time, over geography, they're dispersed, and God's church ends up in Hunt County in 2008. This is a book. James is thinking these Jewish Christians that are under persecution, they're running, they're being dispersed. But this book is for all converted people everywhere, anytime, any place. So a book to God's people, a book to God's converted people wouldn't be, this is what you need to do to be converted. You see it? This is to God's converted people saying, where's your wool? Are you looking like God's people? Are you becoming and maturing and growing in to God's people? That's why James isn't a real book. Just five observations. It's not written in the context of do this if you want to be converted. But our mind can slide there very easily as we read James. Be careful. Hold each other accountable. Remember why James wrote. Remember the assumptions we've made about James. Remember what John the Baptist said. Remember what Paul said. And remember, rightly interpreted, James 2.24 pushes us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. All right. One of the other cool things about this, this book, I call it a wisdom epistle. Some people call it a wisdom book like a Proverbs. Some people call it a letter. It looks like a letter, but it's not to a specific people. So I call it a wisdom epistle, a wisdom letter. It's a bunch of mini-sermons to God's people anywhere, anytime, any place. It's written to all of us. 
It's, it's, a, it's a wisdom book about who we're becoming, a book for our maturity. James says, so that we might be in tune with God's Spirit, that we would persevere to the end, and that we would be perfected ultimately, that we would be perfected in Christ ultimately. And he, he has the coolest language about how we're to be in tune with God's Spirit. I don't know about you, but I, I've never thought about that phrase, about being in tune with God and His Spirit, but that's, that's who I want to be. I don't want to just be somebody who can teach the Bible or does teach the Bible or is in just intrigued with the Bible. I don't want to be just intrigued with what God's doing in His church. Those are good things. I don't want to just be there. I don't want to be left with, wow, that's pretty cool. God's people are pretty cool. God's truth, I mean, he, he does what He says He's going to do. I don't want to be standing back intrigued by it. I want to be somebody who my wool, my sounds, my movement says, I'm in tune with God. I'm in tune with His Spirit. I know what His will is because I'm so familiar with Him. I'm not just intrigued by Him. I'm familiar with Him. Like Jesus is obedient and one with the Father. I want to be one with Him and know Him. And that's James' prayer for the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he says... In James chapter 5, he brings up Elijah. Look at the very, towards the very end of this book, James chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. He brings up Elijah, probably a hero of the faith for James. He's probably well acquainted with Elijah. He's impressed by Elijah and how in tune he was, how bold he was, how dependent upon, Christ, upon God he was in his spirit. And he's probably pretty impressed with how powerful Elijah is. Look at what he says about Elijah. This is kind of James setting up Elijah as the goal for what we're to become in so many ways. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. He sets up Elijah as a man that was in tune with God's Spirit. He could pray that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. He prayed that it'd start raining, and it did. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty, pretty powerful prayer. That's a fervent, righteous prayer. Powerful prayer. That, that guy right there is in tune with God and His Spirit. And listen, this, what he's talking about here, he's not setting Elijah up. James does not set up Elijah up to be some type of magic trick. He's not saying, whoa, look at Elijah. Look at the magic trick he performed. He was able to pray that it wouldn't rain and it, and it, and it didn't. He was able to pray that it would rain and it did. It's, it's not about Elijah. It's about how God had a man who is in tune with him and his spirit and his purpose and his will. How do we become that people? How do we become a people who would pray in tune with God's will so that we don't pray anything unless it's God's will? Well, let's look at Elijah. Let's, let's, let's gather some wool from Elijah. Okay, so go on this journey with me. Let's look at Elijah and gather some wool. Let's see what he smells like. Let's see what he um, looks like, what his movements are like. And let's look at the wool on Elijah, and then let's look at ourselves. And let's do that in 1 Kings chapter 17. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're not going to look at an exhaustive 
story here, but we are going to look at a snapshot of Elijah as he first comes on the scene. Let's gather some wool from him. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Now Elijah the, the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Right, underline that if you're an underliner. Before whom I stand. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here, Elijah, and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at just three things here. Now, I'm, I'm pretty bad about oversimplifying and using the acronyms, and I'm, I'm not trying to do that to be cute, I promise. But I think it helps us to remember the wool. And we need to remember the wool that we're going to pick up from Elijah. And Elijah was three things. In this first passage, just a little bit about him praying that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. And praying that it would, and it did. We, we, we see some things about Elijah that we need. And there are three things. They all start with A. He was aware, he was attentive, and he was absurd. He was aware, he was attentive, and he was absurd. He was unlikely. So that's, that's the three things we're going to look at here. First of all, he was aware. What was he aware of? He was aware of God. Sounds simple? But behind this awareness of God in verse 1, he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Now, he's standing physically in front of the king who can order his head gone at any moment. And what does he say to that guy? As the Lord God lives before whom I stand. That you have to climb into the story and understand that what he basically said to the king was, I don't stand before you. I don't fear you. I'm not scared of what you can do to me. There's only one thing I'm concerned about. There's only one that I'm aware of right now, really. That's God of Israel who lives before whom I stand. That is a good sentence to remember. If we're going to become a people that are mature and growing and in tune with his spirit, we have to have an awareness that there's one before whom we stand. There is ultimately one. No fear of others. No fear of what other people think, of their critique, of if they think we're weird. Because I've already given it away. We're headed to absurdity. Okay? We're, we're going to talk about how absurd we are in a minute. But we don't get to absurd unless we're only aware of one and we're only concerned with one. And that's him. You can't get too absurd. You can't look absurd and be okay with being absurd unless you're aware of one. Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. This kind of fear makes for a pretty weird people. It's pretty rare. Elijah's not consumed with anything going on around him. 
because he's most concerned about God's purpose, God's will, and what God has already said. Before whom I stand is a great filter for us. We don't ultimately stand before men, but we think we stand before men all the time. Why? Because it's what we see. And we've been called to faith to what we don't see. And we have to be constantly reminded, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Dads, functional shepherds, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom you stand. It's a great filter for everything. It covers our whole life. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, men lead their families to the truth because they know there's only one to fear. And they know if there's only one to fear, I'm going to know what he says. And he says, lead your families to the truth. Do you see the connection? It's not before my job I stand. Before my hobby I stand. That hurts me. Because I have hobbies and I like hobbies. I like my kids. I like golf. (laughs) I mean, I do. I, I like to play. I like to have fun. I love fellowship. But I don't stand before it. I'm not concerned about it ultimately. It's not before my money I stand. Not before my retirement account I stand. Ultimately, it's about the purposes and the will of And the movement of the Spirit of God. That is what I want to be in tune with. And I have to have an awareness. And this awareness has to be my life marked. Brad Cardwell. Knucklehead. As God lives before whom he stands. I want that to mark my life. That I'm aware of one. It's hard. How can I fear anything else if I live that way? If I know that and I own that and that becomes me as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, how can I fear anything else? How can there anything distract me? Isaiah chapter 8. Turn there real quick. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah goes through a similar deal where he's calling the people of God back to God and he's a little worried about what they're saying they're going to do to him. Watch how Isaiah, or what God tells Isaiah, what to do. If you're sitting there thinking, man, that, I want to be that guy, I want to be that lady that says, as the Lord God of Israel stands before, um, lives before whom I stand in every area of my life, but it's scary, and I'm afraid what might happen to me. Look what God tells Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. You know what conspiracy means there? What if? That's the translation for conspiracy for us. What if? Well, what if... What if that happens? What if they don't like me? What if we don't have enough money? What if? Fill in the blank. And God says, as I live, stand before me. No what if game. As I live, you stand before me. And you do what I say, and you pay attention. You see it? There's an awareness. I hope that he is growing us into a people who are less and less concerned about what others think and more and more concerned with the purposes and aware of his purposes. Elijah was aware of God and he feared God only. The second thing is that he was attentive. 
Look at verse 5, back in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 5. <clears throat> so he went and did according to what? The word of the Lord. He didn't do according to what his concern. He didn't do according to what if. He didn't do according to what he felt like. He did according to the word of the Lord. We talk about this a lot around here. You, if you've been here any time at all with us, you've heard us talk about and preach about the importance of being and knowing the word of God and being attentive to it and not just reading it for duty, but to study it. And I think it's very easy for us to even get numb to that, to nod our head and affirm it. Yeah, it's all about the Bible. We need to know the word. You hear it, we hear it taught and we hear it preached here. And I think it's easy for us to slip into... Yeah, man, that's right. That's right. That's good. Yeah, we need to affirm that. That's good. We need to be familiar with God. And it's easy to nod our head and affirm it and not be familiar with God and not really pay attention to what He says. You know, when, when we sit in a, in a room like this, in our context, and we hear the word preached, there's emotions and feelings that come and go, and some of, for some of us, consciousness comes and goes. <laughs> when you sit and listen to a sermon... Listen, attentive. Elijah was paying attention to what God said, and when God said it, he did it. Obedience comes when we're attentive to what he says. I've heard it a thousand places, and I don't know who to attribute this to, but I love this quote. Sometimes the first duty of intelligent men is the restatement of the obvious. Sometimes the first duty of intelligent men is the restatement of the obvious. That's what we need. Look, if you're sitting there thinking you don't, you need it. We need to be reminded and restated over and over again is that if we're not attentive, not just sitting and listening, not just observing, not just being intrigued by, but attentive to the specifics of what God says. To dig and pay attention to exactly what he says. God gave specific instructions to Elijah. You go to the brook Cherith. That's where I want you to go. And he could have been thinking, look, I've just made this bold statement in front of the king. I can stay here. I can do this again. He said, no, I want you to leave and go. There's no questioning that we see. It's he did it. Why? Because he was attentive to what God said, the specifics of what God said. He said, go to this specific place. There are specifics in here if we'll dig, but you have to pay attention. <clears throat> Whenever I'm talking with my kids and I'm asking them to do something and I'm giving orders around the house and I say go and clean your room pick up all your toys then put your pajamas on and then we'll read a book and then you can go to bed and I can tell nobody's listening to me mine's wandering you know eye contact I don't have it she's ready to ask a question can I have milk can I have this can I have that not listening to what I said and when I say what did I say uh, you said go to bed. <laughs> Where are the specifics? She wasn't listening. Well, she was listening, but she wasn't paying attention. You see it? The more specifics we get, the more it shows that we're paying attention. Do you see it? And I'm not, I'm not wanting us to be a people who, if, if you are trying to quote what God's been teaching you in the Bible and you can't remember the chapter in reference, we're not going to start going, ah, you're not paying attention. You don't, you don't know the chapter in reference, see? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm amazed at 
the opportunities that I get to interview high school and college students for leadership positions overseas. And when I ask them, these are leadership kids now. These are kids who have been overseas and want to go back and want to serve long term and want to intern with a missionary. And when I ask them, what, what have you been learning from God's word? And I'm amazed. I shouldn't be, but I am. At the responses that I get are, well, God has been teaching me blank. And what they tell me is what they've been learning from life experience. You know, I, I needed a car and I got one. That's what God's been teaching me, that he'll provide. I don't want to discount that. He may have taught them through that life experience, something. But what I asked them was, what is God teaching you in the word? Uh, <laughs> that's the look. Uh, I'm amazed that I want to know, where have you been listening to what God said and doing it? Maybe that's how I ought to ask it. Where have you been in the Bible where you've been listening to what God said and doing it? Uh, and we do it too with each other. I've heard it around here. You've heard it out of my mouth. What is God teaching you? What is he telling you to do and you're doing it? Well, God's been teaching me patience. That's the easy one. Listen, he's teaching us all patience. <laughs> what are the specifics? He told me to clean up my room, put my pajamas on, we're going to read a book, and then I'm going to bed. That's what God's people say when they're asked, what is God saying to you in his word? You give specifics because you're paying attention. Do you see it? Elijah paid attention. I want the markers for my life not to be what I felt, not to be what I've experienced, or what I even think about God. I want what marks my life to be what I heard God say. I want us to become a people who are marked, our lives, we look back and they're marked by, that's when God said this, and it's right here. Let me turn the page and show you. That's what our lives need to be marked with. That's people who are paying attention to the specifics. Elijah paid attention. God said, go to the brook. He went. He was paying attention. The last thing is that um, he was absurd. It's just so like God to be absurd with us. And if, you, if you've been on the faith journey at all, you probably know that. You're probably in the middle of some absurd stuff right now. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I didn't know this about ravens, but ravens are greedy scavenger birds. They don't work. They just wait for somebody else to do the work and then they come and clean up. And they don't even take care of their young. They have babies and leave them. Irresponsible, non-working scavenger birds. And they're dirty. And they don't take care of anybody but themselves until God steps on the scene and says, Ravens, Go take care of my prophet. How absurd is that? Isn't that just like God? To use the most absurd animal on the planet to bring his prophet food. He provides and protects in absurdity. It's, so un- it's just like God to be unlikely. <laughs> and 
And I think that's part of the wool we have is that we serve a God and our lives look and our wool will look absurd so many times. There's a lot about Elijah that's absurd. How he shows up on the scene out of nowhere and then he just leaves without dying. (laughs) Maybe you can read more of that. How he comes on the scene with boldness. Where God sends him. This brook Cherith that God sends him to, Ben and I were over there in that area just last this past month. I, I don't know any other way to explain to you the desolation of where the brook Cherith is. I, I hope I don't hurt your feelings if you've ever lived in New Mexico or Arizona, but it don't have nothing on the brook Cherith or where it's at. It is sand and maybe a rock. I mean, at least New Mexico has, you know, a tumbleweed. There is nothing there. And God says, go there, that's what I'm going to provide for you. That's absurd that you would go there. And also, God, you just told me to tell these people that it wouldn't rain, so the brook's going to dry up, probably. Why are you sending me there? Mm -mm, He just went. Trusting that God could provide in the absurd and unlikely. That's what his life is marked by. God seems to use his design to work amongst the absurd. Christ's coming to this earth was absurd. His manifestation, the fact that he came, we learned that, what, about six, seven months ago when Ben taught. From throne room to here, it's absurd. The cross is absurd. It was to the Jews. The cross is absurd. The fact that he would that that the God of His people would die for His people, destined for His wrath. That's absurd. Election is absurd. It's absurd in so many ways that God would choose a people, that He would rescue worms, that He would gather a people, that He would do the work, and yet we would respond in amazement. It's, it's hard to get your head around. It's absurd. Grace is absurd. Having joy in trials is absurd. There's so many things about our life that's absurd. But what God does in absurdity is this. He teaches us, his sheep, to be dependent upon him alone. Now, I, I've heard many uh, stories from you guys lately, you know, with the economy and with the jobs. And I know that It's been very difficult for many of you, but I'm hearing stories from you that are really cool about how you're saying, I don't know how, but he's providing. It's absurd. It's crazy how in the midst of tough circumstances, he gives us peace. It's crazy. It's absurd. But the purpose for absurdity is to teach us the very thing, and I've heard it from some of you, is that we know we trust God alone. How can we trust anybody else? He's proven faithful. And God does that. He takes us to absurdity so that we'll be dependent upon Him alone. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul said the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. For we do not want you, this is Paul talking, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength 
that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Absurd circumstances, this is the response of the people of God. That He wanted us to rely not on ourselves, but on Him. He delivered us, He will deliver us. That's how you respond to absurdity. Brooke Cherith, you want me to go where there's not going to be any water? Who is going to bring me food? And you're, gonna, you're only going to bring it one meal at a time? Elijah never says any of that. Paul says, we faced death, but it was good. That's absurd for him to say that. We faced death, but it was good because now we depend on God alone. I hope that our lives are marked by absurdity and that we, when, when God places you in a place like Paul or like Elijah and you're in a place where you're looking at the situation and you're going, how in the world is he going to deliver? How in the world is he going to make anything good of this? That we won't, look, I know my tendency when I come into the absurd is to do one thing, cut and run. Get me back to something comfortable quick. I, I go back to bad habits. I go back to uh, different places. I'm just looking for comfort when he places the absurd in front of me. Don't do that. Look for him in the absurd. Look for him in the unlikely. And know and trust him that he is calling you back to a dependence upon him and an opportunity for the gospel to shine when we're placed in absurd circumstances. I, I hope and pray he's making us a people that are aware of him, that fear him only, like Elijah, that we're attentive to what he says, to specifics, and that we embrace the absurd so that the gospel would shine. I hope that's what he's doing. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't. And now James, I know you are thinking, when are we going to get to James? What? We're going to get there, and we're going to get there starting next week in verse 2. But now I think we have a context for what James is saying about what sheep look like. And we're going to pull, we've pulled wool from Elijah. That's who James sets up as this hero, in a sense. And now we're going to pull wool from the rest of James. It's not a rule book. You don't do these things to attain salvation. This is what you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what we're going to engage in the next few weeks. James says, faithful people of God, righteous prayers, Christ-clinging men, look like this. And that's where we're going. And if you want to know what Christ-clinging, faithful praying men and women look like, then engage this in that avenue. Don't engage this as a rule book. Engage this as, I want to be that, I want to become that, I want to bear that. In keeping with my repentance, I want to bear that. That's how we engage James. Do you see it? That's how we're going to engage the rest of James. Byproducts. We have a wool book. These are byproducts of the lives of Christ-clinging, God-fearing people. With the cross in view, with Elijah in view. James is going to tell us what persevering ones, what he calls staying ones, look like. He's going to tell us what they look like how they treat others, what they say, what they don't say, who they look up to. This is all going to come from James in the next few weeks. Who they look up to. When do these people cry? When do they rejoice? What do they brag about? How do they deal with trouble? How do they treat rich people? How do they treat poor people? 
How do they become wise? And how do they pray? It's not a rule book about getting the Christian walk. It's a rule book. It's how God's people are. And that's what we're going to engage. And we know, at least from Elijah, that God's people are aware and attentive and absurd. Pray with me. God, I pray that as we respond to you in worship this morning, that we don't do it out of duty, but that we do it in amazement of the cross, that you would call a people to be like Elijah. God, we we need your help and your Spirit's help, and we need each other. God, we claim a dependence upon you and each other to become people who would pray that it would rain, and it doesn't. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.